Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, verses 16 through 21. You can find that passage on page 888 in your pew Bible. Uh, and if you're with us this morning and you don't own a, a copy of the scriptures uh, that is your own, please take that Bible home uh, from us as a gift. So John chapter 16 verses, or John chapter 3 verses 16 through 21. Hear God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Bill. Well, if you have been around church for very long, uh, or even if you have ever met a Christian or driven behind a Christian in traffic, uh, or if you have seen a throw pillow from Hobby Lobby or watched Tim Tebow play football, you have probably heard the central verse that Bill just read for us this morning, haven't you? In fact, some of you maybe were, were quoting it along with Bill. Because it perhaps is the most famous verse in the Bible for Christians today. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That verse is incredibly rich with with meaning and and it's really become kind of a key way that that we as Christians have summarized the essence of saving faith. What What does it look like to have saving faith? It looks a lot like this. That's why so many of us are familiar with it because it's been used over and over and over by Christians because it just distills the heart of the gospel to its very core, its very essence. But what we might be less familiar with are the verses that come after it, right? You probably heard the first verse and you're like, oh, nice, that's nice. And then it kept going on, you're like, wait, what, what? Like that, that's in there too, wickedness and darkness and evil, and they love the evil ways. Like, what's going on here? We're a little less familiar with the verses, that, but that context is where this, this beautiful kernel of good news, John intentionally situates it in this context for a reason. And it probably comes as a surprise to find that the full picture of the context of John 3.16 is maybe a bit more challenging than we might have expected. So if we're really going to grasp this morning the, the full significance of this remarkable verse, we have to do something. We have to coax our imaginations out of the arena of football eye black and Hobby Lobby decor and bumper stickers. We've got to coax our imaginations out of that arena and into the literary context of John's gospel. Because if we're going to really grasp the, the, the full significance of John 3.16, 
which was written by someone who followed and touched and hugged, interacted with Jesus in real life, and he's at the end of his life looking back and infusing the full significance of the gospel into, his, into the, the gospel that he wrote. If we're going to grasp the full significance, we're going to have to grapple with some hard truths. We're going to have to free ourselves a little bit from the way that the church has misused and even, I will say, abused this verse in recent history by promoting cheap grace without obedience. And some of us are going to have to suspend our cultural narratives that cause us to just completely write off the idea of a loving God sacrificing an innocent son as just unreasonable. We're going to have to suspend that a little bit. But if we do those things... I think that we're going to see the beauty of John 3.16 in a deeper and more personally meaningful way than we ever have before. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're actually going to start in all the verses that come after John 3.16, wrestle with those, and then end with that verse at the very end. And what I want to draw our attention to this morning as we walk through this passage, it's two foundational truths it highlights about saving faith. Just two foundational truths about saving faith. They might sound simple when we get to them, but everything, and I mean everything, is tied up in these two realities. Does that sound good? You got the flow a little bit? All right, well, if you haven't already, go ahead and join me in John chapter 3. Open your Bibles and find John 3. We're actually going to start uh, in verse 17. Because it's in the last few verses that we, that we find our first foundation of saving faith. And this is what it is. We are more broken than we care to admit. We are more broken than we care to admit. Now, what does that mean? Let's go ahead and start reading, starting in verse 17. Here's what John says. For God did not send his son into the world to contemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. After dropping the the iconic line about God's love in verse 16, John goes on immediately to clarify this is why God sent his son. This is the purpose he was sent for. And he makes this much clear. The goal of Jesus was not to condemn, but to save. Now already, if you're like me at least, this rubs against our functional imagination about God. Whether you'd call yourself Christian or not, it's easy to find ourselves thinking that Jesus was sent by God, and yes, he was going to save some people, but he really came to judge and condemn us. It's easy to slip into that thinking. He he really came, he was going to save us, but, but his ultimate goal was to tell us what we're doing wrong and to shame us for the ways that we have been living. Whether we realize it or not, a lot of us operate with that framework of how we see Jesus. After all, people are condemned because they reject Jesus, right? Well, not exactly. In fact, it seems like John is trying to say something a little different here. And it goes like this. If the whole point of Jesus was to save, that means the people he came to save were already in a predicament before he got there. If he came to save, they were already in trouble. Look at what he says in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already, for he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John goes out of his way to say the people who he came, who who reject him ultimately, they were actually already condemned. And the people he came to save, they were condemned before they were rescued by Jesus. The whole point of him coming was to save. 
Which means, and we have to get, get clear on this, that condemnation is not the purpose or even the result of Jesus coming. No, John makes it clear we already stand condemned. Jesus came to save us from the judgment that was already on us. A helpful way to think of this would maybe be to think of a parent uh, who's coming to bail a child out of jail. The, the parent, when they get there, maybe, maybe the parent does, but the parent probably doesn't need, that, like they feel they need to go all the way down to jail just to tell the child that they screwed up. Uh, by, the, by virtue of being in jail, the child already knows that they screwed up. They also don't feel the need to come down to jail to punish the child because law enforcement has already punished the child by putting them in jail, right? No, what, what they come for and what the child needs in that moment is for someone to help them out of the mess they're already in. And that's what John's highlighting about Jesus. As Dane Ortland observed in his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, which I know many of us are reading right now, Jesus' most natural posture isn't a pointed finger, but open arms. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. And that's what John is highlighting about Jesus. He, he didn't come to heap shame on us for our brokenness, but to rescue us from its effects. So when, when we don't believe in Jesus, when we reject Jesus, that's not what makes us condemned. It just locks in our present reality. We're doubling down on what's already going on in our lives. And if we stand condemned apart from Jesus, that means that we're more broken than we care to admit. Now, if you're like me, you probably react to the idea that, that we need, that we, like, we already stand in, in judgment, that we're already condemned. You react to that idea with a little bit of skepticism. I have a lot of times in my life, like, is that even fair? Is that fair? Look with me at verse 19. I think it both answers this question and sheds some more light on just how deep our brokenness goes. Verse 19, John says, and this is the judgment. A better way to translate that that might get us out of the judgment idea is verdict. Uh, that's what that Greek word means. So this is the verdict. This is what we're coming to say as a result. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus. But people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So John returns to one of his favorite metaphors. He started with this in, in John chapter 1. You might have been here when Bill preached about light and darkness. One of his favorite metaphors is, is light. And he says that God, when God sent his son, light came into the world. Light came into the world. But there's a catch. People loved darkness rather than light. People loved darkness rather than the light. When the light came, instead of running toward the light, people ran away from the light and chose to stay in the darkness. Chose to stay in their brokenness. Chose to stay condemned. And notice the force that John gives this image because it's absolutely crucial. He doesn't just say people hid. He doesn't even just say people were afraid. What does he say? People loved the darkness. They loved the darkness. And it's not an accident that he used the word love. Because right after he tells us in verse 16, triumphantly, God loved the world, he says the people loved the darkness. That's the rub. God so loved the world, but we so loved the darkness. 
He goes on to tell us why and what this looks like. Why does the darkness have such appeal? Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. In other words, people rejected the light. They rejected Jesus because they loved the darkness they lived in too much and they were afraid to give it up in order to trust Jesus. Another way of saying that that John says is they were afraid of what the light coming might reveal in them. There are things about being in the dark that they've come to love so much that they do everything they can to keep it from getting into the light. Have you been there? Because I have. And the the dreadful irony is that they'll do this even if it means rejecting something far better. As Albus Dumbledore tells a young Harry Potter in Sorcerer's Stone, humans have a knack for choosing precisely those things that are worse for them. Don't we? Which is just another way of saying we are more broken than we care to admit. There is stuff that we do not let out about our deep brokenness in humanity that we don't want to get into the light. Now there's so much that could be unpacked here. This is just a fascinating analysis by John. But the first thing it helps us see is that God's judgment and condemnation remains fair because those who live in darkness have chosen rebellion actively over living in the light. So God's judgment remains fair. They weren't just ignorant of their brokenness. They saw it and they doubled down on it. That's what John's saying here. And at the same time we see how fair it is, we also kind of see how foolish it is to respond this way, right? Doesn't it seem a little foolish? As an example, uh, a couple nights ago, a few of our high schoolers uh, went and did an escape room at Breakout KC. Uh, So if Peyton's here, Peyton told me, use this in your sermon, I did it, all right? It's up here. We went to an escape room. If you, you've, you've done, uh, uh, I mean, it was wild, right? It, it was absolutely wild. Um, we somehow did like half of it in the last 10 minutes. I have no idea how it happened. Uh, but with like 45 seconds left, we got out uh, and still, still have no idea how we, how we did it. I was out on us uh, for most of that time. I was like, we don't have this. But if you're familiar with escape rooms, uh, you know that throughout the course of the game, you get three free hints that you can use at any time. So you just like wave at the screen, there's a little camera where they're watching you, uh, and you wave at the screen and ask for a hint. Uh, And what John's describing here is kind of like if we asked for a hint, and then once we saw their hint, we were like, eh, let's just stick with the way we were doing it. Like, let's just keep doing the thing that wasn't working before we asked for the hint, right? And just ignored their suggestions and clues. That's kind of the idea of just like the foolishness John's putting on display of responding to Jesus in this way, doubling down on the darkness. Even while you kind of want the light, right? A lot of the people who were waiting for Jesus were hoping that light would come, but then once they saw the light, they turned away. That's, that's kind of what it's like. Uh, you might also remember Bill. Uh, a few weeks ago, he talked about the, the woman who got trapped in the cave that was super dark, and she was stuck there for a long time, pitch black cave. Uh, and, and this would be kind of like if when the rescuers arrived and she saw like that first headlamp peeking around, uh, she was so scared of seeing light again that she was like, actually, you know, like these stalagmites and I are pretty chummy now. Uh, they, they've been pretty great company. I think I'll just stay here a bit longer. It's foolish, right? To return to our metaphor from earlier, when we reject Jesus, John's saying we're in essence rejecting the help of a parent coming to rescue us in jail. Saying, actually, you know what? I kind of prefer it here now. I mean, aside from the Dementors, it's pretty great. I'd rather just figure it out myself. (laughs) Foolish, right? Foolish. 
And at the same time, it's deeply relatable and even understandable, isn't it? Because we've all been there at some point. I've been there both before I knew Jesus and after I knew Jesus. If we're honest, we know our darkness and our brokenness, don't we? To various degrees, depending on how self-aware we are, sure, but nonetheless, we know our darkness. And sometimes, because of the powerful effect that shame has on us, it seems safer and easier to just stay there than let it come into the light and be exposed, isn't it? Even more, there are some things that, if we're honest, we just simply love so much and that we would just hate to get rid of that are, that are so dear to us that we're afraid if Jesus got too close, he might ask us to give them up. And that's scary. Eugene Peterson summarizes this idea so poignantly in his message paraphrase of the Bible. Here's how he paraphrases these verses. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. We've felt this before, haven't we? Now here's what I want us to consider especially those of us in the room who are naturally a bit more skeptical. What if the greatest barrier to receiving God's love was our own love for the darkness? What if that was the greatest barrier to saving faith? What, is, what if as much as we try to tell ourselves otherwise, it isn't truly the intellectual plausibility of the gospel, but the moral demands of the gospel that truly get in the way of our belief? It's not the intellectual plausibility, it's the moral demands that we're afraid it's going to make in our lives. If you were with us last week, uh, Bill walked us through the interaction that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. And you might remember that Nicodemus, he was this like hyper-religious Pharisee, the cream of the crop, morally righteous, this, this all-around good dude. But Jesus told him, that stuff isn't enough to enter my kingdom. It's not enough to do the right thing. You have to be born again. And John seems to be walking the other line of that tension here. Because if Nicodemus is a reminder that moral righteousness can be a barrier to receiving God's love and finding eternal life, this passage is a reminder that moral rebellion won't cut it either. Not moral righteousness or moral rebellion. And if we look at like the actual research that's being done today and the way that people are leaving the church who are leaving the church, more people are rejecting Jesus not because they don't believe who he is, but because they stand in moral opposition to some of his teachings, and they can't reckon with that. Many, and this is not just a modern thing, many have ultimately rejected Jesus out of fear that he might ask them to give up something dear to them. We could also say it like this, because there are parts of the darkness that we love too much to let him touch. And like John says, this is our natural propensity. And I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that we are all obsessed with the most evil things all the time, like we're all the absolute worst human being and doing all the worst things that all the worst people do. It's just to say we love staying hidden. We don't want some things to be exposed. We won't let God, the true light, expose them. The greatest obstacle 
to receiving God's love is our love for the darkness and our fear of exposure. We are more broken, friends, than we care to admit. Because it can be hard to admit there's parts of the darkness that we've grown to love. You all know I love uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. And in The Silmarillion, he, one of his characters reminds us this important reality. Here's what he advises. It's a warning. Love not too well the work of your hands or the devices of your heart. Love not too well the work of your hands or the devices of your heart. What he's saying is not that like, our work is bad or that desire is inherently bad, but that we can pridefully love the things of this world, especially things that are special to us or unique to us. We can love those things to a fault, to the point that we'll do anything to hang on to them, even if it means missing out on an opportunity for something much better. So can I ask us this question this morning? What do you love too much to fully receive God's love? What do you love too much to fully receive God's love? This is true whether you'd say you follow Jesus or you don't. What do you love too much to receive fully God's love? Is there something that you've been clutching so dearly that you're resisting Jesus? Is there something you're you're clinging to in the dark that you're afraid might be exposed if you trusted Jesus? It could be a possession, a desire, a sin. It could be something to do with your wealth or your status or your sexuality. Whether you'd call yourself Christian or not, what do you love too much to fully receive God's love? Friends, we are broken more than we care to admit. That's the first reality of saving faith that this passage makes us confront. Here's the second. We are more loved than we can imagine. Even in the depths of our brokenness, we are more loved than we can imagine. Let's return above to verse 16. Many of you know this by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Love is a big deal for the Apostle John. All throughout his writings, he places a lot of emphasis on God's love for us. If you read everything he's written, the gospel, the three letters he wrote later in his life, even Revelation, he's all about God's love. He, he even he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved, which is like a, a flex, right? It's like, I'm the one Jesus loved. It's all about what it means to be God's beloved. Later on in his gospel, he'll record Jesus saying things like this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus is preparing to do just that, to show his love, not just for his friends, but the whole world. In the first letter that John wrote to a group of struggling Christians, he would make it clear that love is the very essence of who God is. Here's what he says in 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. It's who he is. In that same letter, we find another verse that's basically a rewrite of John 3.16. I was reading this a couple weeks ago, and I was like, oh, I didn't even remember there was another John 3.16 somewhere in the Bible. But it sounds a lot like it. Listen to what he says. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in perhaps the most triumphant verse of all, John explodes with joy when he says this. 
1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And you know what? That's what we are. We're children of God. We're God's beloved. He's lavished his love on us. And all of these marvels, and all these verses, John marvels at the way that we, who are simultaneously more broken than we care to admit, are also more loved than we can imagine. And he shows us how that can be. When we hear the phrase, God so loved the world, uh, I don't know about you, but when I think about it, I think God loved the world so much. Like that's what God so, the so is so much. Uh, And that is true, but actually the Greek word behind so means in this way. In other words, John's main goal is to show this is how God loved the world. This is how God loved the world. God so loved the world. Not just quantity, how much, but this is how. And what's revealed in these verses is an incredibly active love. It's not just feelings of affection, though those are deeply there, but action that proves the love that's there. It's demonstrated through action. It'd be like saying Taylor so loved his wife that he did the dishes for her. That's how he loved Ashton. Doing the dishes is an active demonstration of the way I love my wife. And that phrase could reasonably end with the same so that he might not perish, uh, but have a a normal, uh, happy marriage. Uh, That that could be the, the end of that. If I say I love my wife, but I don't show her that I love her, is that very genuine love? It's active. So how exactly did God actively love the world? He gave his only son That word gave, it's not just sending him to earth, which he did, but by willing to sacrifice him on the cross, even unto death. We can't miss this. The way God shows us his love is through sacrifice. I don't know if you know about love languages, but if you wanted to say that God had a way that he shows love, a love language, it would be sacrifice. It would be giving of himself. But not just the sacrifice of anything, is it? The sacrifice of his only son. That word only, some translations will say only begotten. Uh, The idea behind that word only is that the son is unique or special or one of a kind. We could say it's his one of a kind, unique son. So just think of that possession of yours that's like most special to you. Maybe it's like a unique collector's item or something that there aren't many of in the world. I'm in some online disc golf collector communities, and it's crazy the kinds of things people are dishing out money just to hang on their wall in that community. You have to have something, right, that something you've cherished for many years. Maybe some, a drawing your kid made you that's uniquely valuable and precious to you more than anything else. What is that thing? Now, what would it take for you to give that thing up? that thing that you would rush towards first if your home was on fire. What would it take for you to give that unique thing up? That's the idea behind God giving his only son. He's sacrificing what's most precious to him, which is important because the degree of sacrifice indicates the depth of love, right? The degree of a sacrifice we're willing to take indicates how deep our love is. In other words, the harder to give up, the deeper your love for the person you're giving it up for. So it's just a truth about reality. And as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help think, but think back to my sophomore year of college. Uh, I was on summer break. I was home from college, which was literally across the street from my house, so I was still just chilling in small town Sterling. And on a Saturday morning, I got a call uh, from my best friend, 
Now, my friend had been away all summer working at a camp, uh, so he wasn't calling to see, like, hey, do you want to hang out? Uh, or even checking in to see how I was doing, which rude, right? No, he called me because he needed something. He needed me to do something for him. And here's what he asked. Hey, Taylor, what are you doing today? Nothing? Great. Hey, do you think you might be able to go to my brother's house, grab his hair clippers, and drive three hours to camp to bring them to me? Oh, also, one problem, his house is locked, and they're not there, so you're going to have to figure out a way to break in, and also, I don't know where he keeps his clippers, and also, he and his wife don't know that I'm telling you to do this, so if you could just keep, like, play it cool and keep that quiet, that would be great. In other words, go break into my brother's house and grab hair clippers and drive them round-trip six hours. That's the request. What an insane thing to ask someone to do, so naturally, I did it, right? I went to Mike's house, I found a window in the basement I could push in, I jumped down, I searched for the, the, the clippers once I found them. Since I felt kind of bad about breaking into their house, I did their dishes, um, like anyone would do that. And then I made the three-hour drive just so Jake could cut his hair. Now here's the thing, I wouldn't just do that for anyone. Sorry to say, but if you asked me to do that, I'd probably say no. But because Jake was my best friend, I was willing to commit a minor felony and drive six hours just to make sure he could get a haircut. The degree of sacrifice indicated the depth of my love. Now here's the rub. Imagine if I did that for the people who were as hardest for me to love. For my least favorite people, even, dare I say, for my enemies. What if I did that for the people I least liked being around? Friends, that's the remarkable nature of the way God loved the world. His love, which was already deep because of what he was willing to sacrifice, is proven to be deeper because of who he was willing to sacrifice for. God so loved what? The world. This phrase, the world, it's, it's doing two things at the same time. Uh, first, it's broadening God's love beyond just the people of Israel. It includes them, but it's, it's broadened. So, so this love is not reserved for Israel alone or for insiders or just for those like Nicodemus with a good resume. But as we'll see when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman in the next chapter, it's for all people, outsiders, foreigners, even Israel's enemies, everyone. That's what it means that God loved the world. But the word world in John also is a stand-in for the people and powers that are opposed to God's reign, the people who have rebelled against him. In other words, God's enemies. No one, no matter who, is exempt from the act of God's love which is incredibly significant. Because at one level, we hear God so loved the world, and naturally we think, or at least I think, I'll speak for myself, we think, well, of course, he made the world. It's a no-brainer that he loves the world, and that he loves the people in the world that he made. But what we often forget is that the world is hard to love, isn't it? For the last few years, I have had a really hard time loving our world. And if you've stayed up at all on what's going on this week, it's really hard to love our world, right? It's hard. One of my favorite books is a book called Jaber Crow. It's by an author, his name's Wendell Berry. It's a book about a lonely barber in small town Kentucky, and this town is just like any small town. It's full of its beauty, of the simple life, and it's full of its mess, of the broken, normal, everyday life. And at one point, the barber reflects on this very verse we're talking about, John 3, 16. And I think this is so significant. Here's what he says. He says, all my life, I had heard preachers quoting John 3, 16. They would preach on the second part of the verse to show the easiness of being saved, only believe. But where I hung now was the first part. 
If God loved the world even before the event at Bethlehem, that meant he loved it as it was, with all its faults. That would be hell itself in part, because he would be like a father with a wayward child whom he can't help and can't forget. Some of you know that pain. But it would be even worse than that, for he would also know the wayward child and the course of its waywardness and its suffering. That his love contains all the world does not show that the world does not matter or that he would, did not suffer it unto death. We do not. It shows that the world is hell only in part. But his love can contain it only by compassion and mercy, which if not hell entirely would at least be a crucifixion. What Barry's getting at in this meditation is this key idea that the world is hard to love. It would be painful to love the world the way that God does, just like a parent who has a child who's going astray and they can't help them, and they feel their pain. They still love them, because the world is messed up in many ways. He's also reminding us that God's love is all the greater because his most difficult sacrifice was for the whole entire world, for you, for me, and not, importantly, after we got our act together but while we were still his enemies. This love is for the world even and especially when it's at its worst. For you and for me, even and especially when we're at our worst, when we keep choosing the darkness. This calls to mind a a wonderful passage from the Apostle Paul where he says, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, in that very moment we were hardest to love, Christ died for us. Friends, that's the extravagance of God's love. That's the depth of his affection for us. We are more loved than we can imagine. But there's even more. Because the invitation of John 3.16 is far greater than we typically think. In fact, there's a good chance you've heard this verse used in church before, and you've only been given a watered-down picture of what God is inviting us into when he says that he will give us eternal life Here's what I mean by that. For a lot of my life, just to be honest, I thought John 16 was really boiled down to two moments in life. The moment I first believe and the moment I die because that's when I get eternal life. So only two moments in my life really matter because John 3:16, we believe and when we believe, we ensure we'll get eternal life after we die. So those are the two important moments in life. But there is so much more here. John 3 isn't just about those two moments. It's about every moment in between. When John talks about belief, he's not only talking about one moment of thinking right things about God, but a full life marked by trust and obedience. We could say if the way God shows his love, his love language of giving is sacrifice, the way he receives love is obedience. Yes, the gospel is opposed to earning, but Jesus used Nicodemus to remind us it's not opposed to effort. And here's the other important thing. When John, when Jesus invites us to receive eternal life, it's not just something we get when we die. It's not just something we get when we die. No, he makes it clear in the way he words it here. Eternal life is something we begin to experience now. That's an eternal kind of life that's available to us now. We receive God's spirit. We receive access to his power and his presence. We are a part of a kingdom That's what eternal life is, which means to perish is to miss out on that now, not just to have fire insurance for when you die. 
To perish is to be separated eternally for God and all things good, but to have eternal life is to have an eternal, a new kind of life both now and forever. As Jesus will tell his disciples in just a few chapters, truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has, already has, crossed over from death to life. The very moment we first believe, we are ushered into a new dimension of life, a new way of living, and that's what we call eternal life. And it's open to everyone who believes. No matter your background or social status or depth of sin or your experience with the church, John says that all who believe have access to this life now. There's so much more than we imagine. If we let go of our love for the darkness, if we can surrender ourselves in response to God's sacrifice, we can experience an eternal kind of life now. And if this is true, if this is what God makes available to us while we are still sinners and his enemy before we find him, then we are more loved than we can imagine. So here's the last question I want to ask this morning as we close. Will you come into the light? Whether you say you follow Jesus or you don't, will you come into the light? Because that's the invitation John gives at the end of this passage. He says, come into the light. Look finally at verse 21. But whoever does what is true does what? They come to the light so that they, it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, the message paraphrase is really helpful here. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light instead of hiding from it so the work can be seen for the God work it is. The invitation, friends, is to come into the light. And that means more than just come get found out. <laughs> come tell all your deepest, darkest secrets. Let, let's, let God see it. It's way more than that. It's an invitation to deep intimacy with the greatest lover of our souls. That's the invitation to come into the light, to be seen, to be known, to be loved. Because the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to be afraid of the light right? Because of God's compassion and mercy. Yes, God's truth exposes us, but his compassion keeps him in the room with us. He's not going to walk out on us. We don't have to be afraid of the light. In the loving arms of our Father, we have nothing to fear, nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to lose. To come into the light is to keep working and living in the truth. It's to be changed by God's love. It's to begin to live and keep living with access to this new kind of life that Jesus makes available, eternal life. So I ask again, will you come into the light? What darkness that you're holding onto needs to be surrendered so that you can do so? In the giving of his son, God sacrifices the most unique and precious person to demonstrate your value and worth in his eyes. Not the future you, but the current you in all of your mess. But he doesn't want to leave you in that mess. He invites you to come into the light so his truth can change you. So you can experience not just everlasting life in the future, but eternal life now. When you place your hope in Jesus, this is true of you even now, even today, in this room. If God was willing up to give his son, we can give up whatever it is that we hold so dear, whatever darkness we find ourselves loving.
so that we can find healing and wholeness and new life. That's the full picture of John 3.16. And all you have to do is come into the light. Will you? Can we pray? Let's pray. God, I'm never, I'll say I'm always amazed at how even when preaching your word, the accuser is reminding me of my own brokenness. And how much shame makes me want to hide, makes me want to resist the promptings to be near you, makes me turn away from other things to cope and to medicate my pain and my suffering. Even now, I've felt this this morning, preaching your word, because of my inadequacy and my brokenness. Thank you for loving me, even when I'm at my worst. Thank you for loving us, even when we're at our worst. Thank you that not even your son was so dear to you to stop you from loving us. Help that reality to sink into our bones this morning. And I pray if there is even one person in this room who has been questioning, who has been skeptical, who has been resistant, would you see the ways that maybe a love for something they're afraid to give up is keeping them out of living eternal life now? Would you draw them to yourself? Draw us all nearer to you in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit.